Children can be dismissed at this time. And let me ask you, if you would please, to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 8. Return to the Gospel according to Mark this morning. We pick it back up from where we left off a couple of weeks ago, just after Jesus had fed the 4,000. He encounters the spiritually blind Pharisees and the spiritually blurry disciples on the boat. As you're turning there, just a couple of things about the calendar here coming up. Um, I will be heading down to Los Angeles to the Master's Seminary for my in-class portion. So this is my third semester. I'll go down one more time in July and then I'll have a year to uh, write what is the equivalent of my dissertation. And so I will be gone beginning this week and I'll be gone next Sunday. So I've asked my friend Kofi Adu-Bohan, who's the planting pastor of Redeemer Bible Fellowship in Medford. He's a part of that, I've mentioned before, the fellowship of local pastors in the area. Kofi's actually the one that started that fellowship. And so Kofi will be here with you next week. He is originally from London, and so you'll just enjoy the accent, if nothing else. No. He's an excellent, excellent preacher as well, and a godly man, so you'll be well served. And then the following week, Sunday, January 15th, I will be back, but my friend Lucas Bradburn, who some of you know from Rogue Valley Community Church, who's also a part of that pastor's fellowship, will be here with us on that Sunday and I'll just get to listen and enjoy the preaching of God's word. So those are, that's what's coming up in the next couple of weeks here. Just wanted to keep you up to date on that. And then uh, when I get back in the pulpit, then we'll resume our study of the gospel according to Mark. And it will really ultimately then climax, at least in the center, with Peter's recognition, finally, of who Jesus is. But for now... This morning we see a spiritual vision test here in Mark chapter 8, verses 11 to 21. If you would please follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 8, verses 11 to 21. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word now, we not only ask for your help, but we declare that we need your help. 
We need your help to understand the great realities that your word holds for us. The priceless treasures that we have in every part of your word. And so we would ask, God, that you would give us that insight, give us that understanding. We know that it's your spirit who searches the deep things of God. And so we pray that your spirit would reveal to us the truth of the word of God this morning. We pray most especially that the Spirit would reveal to us the truth of Jesus Christ. And we recognize, Lord, that there are varying degrees of recognition of Jesus. There are those who are just completely blind to him, who demand from him a test, who seek to put themselves in a position of authority over him and will not believe, supposedly, unless he shows them why they should believe. Lord, if there's anyone here like that this morning, would you please reveal to them the audacity and the pride of that type of attitude? We recognize also, Lord, that there are those who who follow you and yet who don't see you all the time as we should see you. We focus on the things of the world far too often and far more than we should. We allow the realities of our circumstances to blurry our vision and to cloud our vision of you. We focus in on what we don't have or perhaps the problems we do have and we completely miss the reality that you are sovereign over everything. Lord, you have already made it clear in your word and Mark has done so in his gospel that to follow Jesus is to live a lifestyle of repentance and to live a lifestyle of believing the gospel. So as we recognize most likely all of us, if not all of us, as we recognize, as we look into the mirror of your word, as we recognize our failures and our blurred vision, when, when we fail to see Jesus appropriately, when We scramble for bread when the bread of life has already been given to us. We pray, Lord, that you would lead us to repentance and deeper belief in the gospel. Help us to not think that Christianity is come into at one point in the past and then we are just somehow inactive from then on because we have believed in the past. Help us to remember that we have believed in the past, but the call of Jesus Christ is to presently repent and presently believe the gospel. So that if it's your will this morning to expose to us sin in our hearts, we would not despair, but we would repent and believe the gospel. So that we would treasure Jesus and see him more clearly and we would know more deeply that in Christ alone, our hope is found. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, to see and open the ears of our hearts to hear. We believe what you say, Lord, the man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we together this morning say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
You've been in the doctor's office before and you have no doubt been waiting there as the patient who probably kept your promise to be on time, but you know how that goes. You've been sitting in the room waiting and of course, inevitably, as you sit in the room waiting, you begin to look around. You look around and you see what's plastered all over the walls and no doubt you see various signs, various posters, Perhaps you see the human heart with all its different parts and functions so that if the doctor needs to, he or she can point to it and say, this is what's going on in your heart. Most likely, if you have been in that situation in the doctor's office waiting there to see the doctor, you probably have seen that familiar chart, the one that is, I don't know, maybe about so big, and at the very top of it has a large letter E. And you know what the doctor uses that for if you've been in that circumstance before. The doctor uses that at some point in your exam to make you stand on one point, on one line, and to look across the room without any of these things on in order to see if you can see what's on that chart. And he or she will most likely have you cover one eye and then cover the other. They're giving you a vision test, right? So that you can tell whether or not you need some of these things. And then you can tell whether or not you maybe need to go to a more specialized doctor, an eye doctor, or an optometrist. Well, this morning, as we approach Mark chapter 8, verses 11 to 21, it's, it's coming up into a context of sight. Jesus has opened the ears of a deaf man already in the past, and he's about to open the eyes of a blind man in a, in a double healing, a double touch It all points us in this particular section of Mark, it all points us to the disciples' continued failure to see who Jesus is and to hear him clearly and to recognize him truly and fully. But it will soon culminate with with Peter's confession of who Jesus is and yet the full sight would not yet come until after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We look at this this morning as a spiritual vision test so that we could pick on, or so that we could not pick on the Pharisees and the disciples, though the temptation is always there, of course, but we look at this spiritual vision test this morning so that we could turn it around and see ourselves. Isn't that the point of God's word? Not to look back and go, how did they not understand but to look at it and say, Lord, where don't I understand? The very first day of 2023, January 1st, 2023, and I think it's necessary that we look at this passage and we take this spiritual vision test. And my guess is that most likely, most all of us will not fall into the first category of people that we will see as represented by the Pharisees, of those who are spiritually blind, though certainly there could be, perhaps is, at least someone here who is spiritually blind this morning. But my guess is that most of us will fall into the second category. Maybe not right now in this moment, but we can see times in our lives when we were not spiritually blind per se, but when we were spiritually blurry when we could make out 
something of Jesus, but we couldn't quite clearly see who Jesus is. And the, the effect of that recognition of Jesus didn't quite grasp our hearts the way it should. And so as we take this spiritual vision test this morning, we will look at these two different groups who represent for us two different types of spiritual vision, but the point is so that we would look at ourselves, so that we would take this spiritual vision test, so that we would be able to recognize either spiritual blindness or perhaps spiritual blurriness, and and the overall effect would be so then we would result with a spiritual sight that would result in a 2020 vision. But of course, the work of maintaining that 2020 vision is called the Christian life. That when we obtain 2020 vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know how it is. Life punches you in the gut a few times and then all of a sudden you're not seeing so clearly anymore. Circumstances overwhelm you and all of a sudden you're tempted to see what's around you instead of see the one who sits enthroned above you. And so this morning, I want us to take this spiritual vision test so that we would be able to search our own hearts and think about our own lives so that we would walk away, not just with 2020 spiritual vision, but with 2020 spiritual vision and a resolve to maintain that 2020 spiritual vision. So let's meet these two different groups of people. They're groups of people that we've already met already in the gospel according to Mark. Groups of people that are no doubt very familiar to you. But groups of people that represent to us something of what it is to have a lack of clear spiritual vision. First of all, in verses 11 to 13, we meet the Pharisees who represent to us the spiritually blind The first group is the spiritually blind, the group that cannot see anything about who Jesus is. Let me begin reading in verse 10 because it sets the context as it is really connected to the feeding of the 4,000. Verse 10 begins, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. So just to remind you where we are geographically at this point in the gospel according to Mark. Jesus has been conducting his ministry in the land of the Gentiles. He had just fed 4,000 people in the region of the Decapolis, which was the area where Jesus sent the man who he healed of the the demoniac, the, the man who was possessed with multiple demons. He cleansed that man, cast out those demons, and told that man to go and tell everyone what God had done for him. And the man went preaching about Jesus in the city of the, in the region of the Decapolis. This is the region where Jesus was when he fed the 4,000. And then he gets into the boat, crosses to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and comes back into Jewish territory, where verse 11 tells us he's immediately greeted by his archenemy. Verse 11 says, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Don't you love how Mark writes his gospel? It's all action with Mark. 
He's got you thinking and seeing this boat crossing the water, getting onto the land, and just as soon as Jesus steps foot on land, it's as if the Pharisees are there ready to pounce. They've already back in chapter 3 determined that they're going to kill him. They just need to gather more evidence. They need to convince the people. And it seems that perhaps they need to get even more courage themselves to be able to deliver him over to the hands of the Romans. And so they come. And they begin to argue with him. They're not interested anymore in figuring out what he has to say. They're interested in arguing with him to attempt to prove him wrong. You remember that the Pharisees have already attributed the work of Jesus to Satan. They're not wondering, is he from God or is he not? They're absolutely convinced in their mind he is not from God. They can't recognize what's right in front of them. They are looking in the face of the very Son of God. And they miss it completely. So they argue with him. And in their arguing and in their intention, they seek from him a sign from heaven in order to test him. They're not interested in arguing even. What they're interested in doing is testing him. But this isn't the type of test that would perhaps show themselves to be wrong and Jesus to be right. This is the type of test that is a trap. The word test is used four times in the gospel according to Mark. Three times in reference to what the Pharisees were doing with Jesus. But do you know what the other fourth time was? And it was in fact the very first time that it was used to what Satan did to Jesus in the wilderness. Mark is signaling to us that the Pharisees don't represent people who are trying to do the best they can, walking their own spiritual life, and then somehow just sort of trying to figure Jesus out. Mark wants us to know this this is the work of Satan. Isn't that what Paul says, or rather who Paul says, is behind the sons of disobedience even right now? The prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. And so these spiritually blind Pharisees who can't recognize the Son of God right in front of them come to Jesus and they seek to test Jesus. But you'll notice that Jesus isn't going to play their game. He's not going to stoop to their level anymore. Verse 12 shows us Jesus' response to the Pharisees and to the spiritually blind. And first of all, it highlights the sound that comes out of him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. Mark doesn't say it, but I I know when we let out that kind of sigh today, it's often accompanied with a head nod, right? When are you going to get it? Mark doesn't tell us why exactly Jesus sighed, but I think it's pretty clear. He was at least frustrated with the Pharisees. And I think he was probably righteously angry with the Pharisees. 
After all, what does their own scriptures say? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And yet they failed to recognize that they were looking into the face of the Lord God. And so they put him to the test. But Jesus wouldn't have any of it. He sighs deeply in his spirit, signifying to us the frustration that he had with this particular generation. And then he says to them, why does this generation seek a sign? Why? John likes to use the word sign. In fact, he, he organizes his gospel around seven different signs. Sign is a slightly different word for Mark to use. He usually likes to use the word that indicates miracle or a working of power when he talks about Jesus' uh, acts to show who he is, but here he uses the word sign. Jesus asks them a question, but then he ends his statement to them This short interaction with the Pharisees, he ends it with a declarative statement to them that is the nail in the coffin to their fate. Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. He asks them why they want a sign, and then he says, you're not going to get one. Matthew indicates a little bit more interaction here with the Pharisees, but Mark wants us to know that Jesus is done with the Pharisees. That's it. He's not going to stoop down to their level. He's not going to play their game. He knows that no matter what they see, what they experience, it's never enough. Look back to chapter 3 of Mark. The Pharisees had already seen a sign. They had already seen a miracle of Jesus. And no doubt, this was not the only one that they saw. But this is the one that they saw where they determined that they were going to kill him. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6 says, And again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Here they are again. Another trap. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. You see, Jesus, back to Mark chapter 8, Jesus was not going to give them a sign because he had already given them everything that they needed to know who he was. It was not a matter of them just needing to see in order to believe like doubting Thomas. It was a matter of no matter what they saw, they would not believe. They were dead in their sin. They were obstinate. They were spiritually blind. Their pride would not allow them to recognize a power any greater than them. And so Jesus says, because that's your position, you're not going to get anything from me. 
I'm not playing your game, Pharisees. Jesus could have done anything at this point to make it clear who he was. But I want you to notice something, that as readers of the Gospel of Mark, what comes right before this particular scene with the Pharisees is the feeding of the 4,000, right? And what was it that motivated the feeding of the 4,000? Look up at verse 2. Jesus looks out on the crowd, he recognizes what's going on, and in verse 2 he says, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. The compassion of Jesus is highlighted and then the very next scene, the blindness of the Pharisees is highlighted. They refuse to recognize who Jesus is. They want to see a sign from the heavens or some say maybe in the heavens, a sign of the apocalypse, a sign that shows Israel that the Messiah has come to eradicate her enemies. They want to see that, but Jesus says, you're not gonna get anything. Do you remember When Moses asked to see God's glory, what happened? God says, first of all, you can't see me. You'll die if you see me. But I'll tuck you into this cleft of a rock and I'll put my hand over it and I'll pass before you and then I'll let you see what's left over after I pass by. And so he does Moses is tucked into the cleft of the rock. Somehow the hand of God, though he doesn't have a physical hand, covers him and he passes by. And do you remember what the Lord does in order to show Moses his glory? It's not so much about what he saw, it was what he heard. The very first thing Yahweh does is proclaim his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord. And then what does he do? He highlights his character to Moses. Because the glory of the Lord is in his name and in his character. It's not so much about what you see. What you see is a reflection of who he is. And who he is is his name and his character. But the very first thing, the very first character attribute that the Lord, that Yahweh highlights for Moses is his compassion. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious one, slow to anger and abounding in love from generation to generation. I don't think it's a coincidence that Mark shows the compassion of Jesus and then the Pharisees demand a sign. The reader goes, you fools, he's just showed you the sign. The sign is not the miracle. The sign is the overwhelming compassion that he shows to people in need. And if you're here today as a Christian... I suspect that that's what got you one day. The compassion of Jesus. You realize as God opened your eyes, you realize that you were totally sinful. That every bit of your life was filthy dirty before God. Every ounce of you was unholy. And yet Jesus went to the cross and paid for every single one of those sins. 
and rose from the grave so that he could now give life to all who believe in him. And you recognize the reality of Jesus and his compassion doing that for you when what you deserve is the unending wrath of God and instead you get the never-ending love of God. You see, it's the compassion of Jesus that transforms the sinner. Jesus is going to make it clear later on in Mark chapter 13 that it's not the signs that you need to pay attention to because one day false Christs and false prophets are going to come and do you know what they're going to be able to do? Signs. So that Jesus will say, if possible, they will lead astray the elect. It's not possible, but they'll try. What does Jesus want the Pharisees to understand, what did Jesus want his disciples to understand as they look on this, on this event? And what does God want us to understand? That you can't see Jesus rightly unless you see him with the eyes of faith. Unless you think about the reality of his compassion. That what you needed most was saving and that's what he did. And so if what you needed most was saving and he did it, then Paul says in Romans 8, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? He who gave his own son, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? And so Jesus is not going to play their game because it doesn't matter what they see, they're never going to believe. You think then about the person today who says things like, well, if I could just see a sign. But then perhaps you think about your own life and maybe you prayed prayers that I used to pray myself. Lord, if you just just make it clear, then I'll know. Maybe I'm the only one that's ever prayed that. Lord, if you just... If you just show me, then I'll know. The problem with wanting to see signs is that what they would be in awe of is not the one who gives the sign, but the sign itself. Whoa, do that again, God. God sits in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases, the scripture says. Jesus could have done anything at this point. Jesus could have levitated them up into the air, spun them around, whatever he wanted to do to them, turned them into a loaf of bread, anything he wanted to do, but he wouldn't do it because he won't be tested. And so the spiritually blind are left then with absolutely nothing from Jesus. And verse 13 says, and he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. And that was it. The focus of Jesus' ministry will now rest most specifically with his disciples. The Pharisees will come back onto the scene, but it's already clear they don't really want to know who Jesus is. And so Jesus won't tell them. That leads me then this morning to warn those of you who are here this morning and might be spiritually blind. 
you don't get a forever chance. I don't know when. Only Jesus does. And he's far more gracious than I am. Far more patient than I am. But at some point, if you continue to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, then he will leave you with nothing. The Pharisees had no idea the serious nature of their blindness because that's the nature of spiritual blindness. They have no idea. And that's why those who can see need to tell them, friend, wake up. Do you really think that Jesus is just going to tolerate your sin? over and over again? What if you don't wake up tomorrow morning? What if you don't make it home on the drive today? And so the spiritually blind need those who can see to wake them up. But of course, it's only by the Spirit of God that they'll wake up. But that can never be an excuse to not tell them, even if it means losing friends. Because do you want to know where these Pharisees are right now? Assuming they stayed in their condition? They're in hell. That's the fate of the spiritually blind. They can't see Jesus and so they get nothing from Jesus and then ultimately he leaves them. But then we encounter the second group, and I think that this group is probably a little bit more closer to home than the spiritually blind. We meet the spiritually blurry in verses 14 to 21. The spiritually blurry. Jesus will, of course, ask them if they're blind still, and in a sense they are. There's a sort of temporary blindness that they experience. But I think as as we think about these disciples in this situation, we can see in ourselves this very same tendency. So the spiritually blurry in verses 14 to 21, we're on the boat now. And verse 14 says, now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. So there's your problem. They're in the boat. It's not too much long. uh, It's not too much longer after they had just collected seven baskets full of bread. And yet at this point, they've forgotten to bring any bread. And so they're focused on their problem. They're probably hungry. And at this point, probably veering into being hangry. And all God's people said. (laughs) And so they've got a problem. It's a physical problem. It's a hunger problem. It's a real problem. It's a tangible problem. It's a problem they can see. It's a problem they can feel. But then Jesus says to them in verse 15, and he cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So Jesus comes out of nowhere. They're thinking about bread and the fact that they've forgotten it. They can't believe they've forgotten it. They just had seven baskets full and now they don't even have any bread except for one loaf. And Jesus turns to them and says, listen up, boys. I want to warn you about a serious problem here you better be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. 
Now, the, the ESV translates this as, and he cautioned them, literally it's, and he was ordering them or giving them orders, saying, and he gives them two commands, watch out and beware. Jesus was teaching the disciples and giving them a serious warning because they were on the verge of a serious fatal condition. He tells them to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, but Mark doesn't actually define for us what the leaven of the Pharisees and what the leaven of Herod is. Matthew says it's their teaching. Luke says it's their hypocrisy, but Mark doesn't say. Most likely, here in the Gospel of Mark, what Herod misses and what the Pharisees miss is the identity of Jesus. What is, the, what is the warning that Jesus gives to the disciples? Be careful that you don't misunderstand who I am. And therefore find yourself opposing the kingdom of God. Why would he have to say that to the disciples? They still didn't get it. Because they're spiritually blurry. Probably even more so spiritually blind here. They're thick-headed. This is their third scene on the boat. And they're 0 for 3. Every time the disciples get on the boat, their failure is emphasized. They misunderstand who Jesus is. And so he cautions them, you better watch out. Now, leaven if you're familiar with the scriptures, then you most likely know and in your mind you can kind of get signaled by the word leaven. Leaven is bad in the Bible. When it refers to people, it's really bad. It usually refers to some type of sin, some type of evil, some type of disobedience. And so Paul will tell the Corinthians that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Because that's how leaven works, right? You just need a little bit of leaven to put into your bread in order to make that bread rise. Because it just takes a little bit of leaven to influence and affect and penetrate the entire loaf of bread, right? Jesus is telling these disciples, listen, you've got a little bit of leaven in you. You better be careful that that leaven doesn't spread. And isn't this the warning that the New Testament gives the church? A little leaven leavens the whole lump, Paul says. John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Why would John tell Christians to keep themselves from idols? Because Christians can give themselves to idols. Why does Jesus tell the disciples, those who left everything and followed him, why does he tell them to be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? Because, do you remember what happens to Judas? Eleven of them heeded this warning ultimately by the grace and providence of God, but one of them didn't. And instead, he betrayed Jesus just as he was destined to do. And in his overwhelming guilt, he committed suicide. You see, the spiritually blurry need a warning, don't they? And so Jesus gives them this warning. 
And then verse 16 tells us what happened next. And as your laughter indicated when I read it the first time, you know it wasn't good. Verse 16, and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. I don't, we'll have to ask Mark when we get to heaven. I think this was Mark's comedic side coming out. I mean, how could you not laugh at this? They're over here talking about the fact that they don't have any bread. Simon, did you bring the bread? I didn't bring the bread. I thought Thomas was, Thomas, I thought Judas was bringing the bread. He handles the money around here. And then Jesus says, hey, be careful. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And then they just stare at him. So yeah, about that bread. I can't believe you didn't bring the bread. I mean, how do they miss this? Jesus then says to them, verse 17, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? In other words, I'm not talking about bread, people. It's, it's interesting to note here, I'm not totally convinced of this, and there are some, some scholars that say it, it is what Mark's doing, and other scholars that say it's not what Mark's doing because it doesn't fit his pattern, but I want to point out something to you. Verse 14 says, now they had forgotten to bring bread. So they had forgotten to bring bread, but then it says they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And then drop down to verse 16, how much bread does verse 16 say they had? No bread. Now, it's possible that they had one loaf of bread, and and the word loaf actually refers to something like a little piece of pita. It's not a loaf like you think of, you know, you go to the bakery and you buy a nice loaf of bread. It's like a little tortilla shell sort of thing, something that can't be shared with 13 men, something that won't fill one man, let's be honest. So it's possible that they did have one dinky little loaf of bread, But do you know how much bread Matthew says they had in this very same situation? None. No bread. It's possible. I'm not saying this is what he's doing because I don't know. But I have to wonder if what Mark is doing as he looks back on this scene, as he hears Peter tell him about this scene, they both would have understood the lunacy of this situation. They didn't understand it then, but they understood it later as they wrote it, right? They're arguing about having no bread, and who's inside the boat with them? The bread of life. It's possible that what Mark's doing is saying they didn't have any bread, but there was a loaf of bread with them in the boat, and his name was Jesus. Maybe that's not what he's doing. We'll ask him when we get into heaven. But even if that's not what he's doing, it still highlights the ridiculous reality of their argument, doesn't it? Again, where does Mark put this situation? Just after the feeding of the 4,000. Where Jesus showed them for the second time that he can take whatever they have and he can multiply it to more than meet their needs. And now here they are with no bread in the boat and they're arguing about it instead of listening to Jesus and even instead of going to Jesus and saying, hey Jesus, we blew it, I'm so sorry, we forgot bread do you think you could do that thing again? 
Jesus could have just said, bam, bread. He didn't, he didn't, but he could have. That's what they would understand later, but they didn't get it now. They were spiritually blurry. And so Jesus begins to pepper them with questions. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? A series of questions that are rhetorical questions. Questions that are arrows that shoot straight to the heart of the disciples. That should have got them going, oh man, I think we're missing something here. And then, questions that are designed to get a response back from them. Verse 19, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And then another question that was designed to be answered, verse 20, and the seven for 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And then the final question, which mirrors a question that he has already asked to them, Do you not yet understand? What were they supposed to understand? They were supposed to understand who Jesus is and what he can do based upon who he is. But they didn't. You see, their their vision was blurry because where was their focus? On bread on something that's physical instead of the one who is in the boat with them. I want to illustrate this for you and it's going to require motions from you, okay? So just to warn you, wake up the person next to you if you need to. I want you, first of all, to start by looking up here at me. Hello. You can see me, right? Now, I want you to put your hand in front of your face Go ahead, do it. Hand in front of your face. Now look at your hand as you also try to look at me. Odds are you can see me still, but I'm blurry, right? Now your hand is in focus, unless of course you're not wearing your reading glasses or whatever. Okay, you can put your hand down now. That's what the disciples did. They looked at their immediate circumstances and it caused their vision of Jesus to become blurry. Brothers and sisters, don't we do the same thing? Isn't that what worry is? Isn't that what fear is? We take our eyes off of Jesus because our circumstances pop up and it, it comes between us and Jesus And instead of looking past our circumstances to keeping our eyes on Jesus, we take our eyes off Jesus and we look at our circumstances and it causes our vision of Jesus to become blurry. Oh, he's still there and we still know he's there. We're not going to walk away from him, but we just don't see him as clearly. What does Jesus teach in, in the Gospel of Matthew about worry and anxiety? He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. 
Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. You see, this spiritually blurry vision that the disciples have was not relegated just to the disciples in the past, but it's a problem that the present disciples have also, isn't it? Now, Jesus leaves the Pharisees, right? But who gets in the boat with them and goes with them? The disciples, because they've answered the call. Jesus said, follow me, and they did. Did they understand everything completely? No. Clearly. But they would understand everything completely. Why? Because they persisted in following Jesus. What is Jesus' call of the gospel at the very beginning of Mark? He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance and believing the gospel is not something that you do in the past, though it should be something that you have done in the past. But my friends, the reality of repentance and believing the gospel is for the Christian a lifestyle. We are always repenting and we are always believing. And we have to be, right? Think back to your week this week. Did you sin? You don't have to tell us about it. In fact, maybe you shouldn't. But you did. Because that's what sinners do. So then what do I need to do when I sin? I need to repent of my sin, but also as I repent of my sin, I need to believe the gospel. That that sin has been paid for by Jesus because I couldn't pay for it. And not only has it been paid for, but I've been freed from its power over me. I'm a new creation in Christ. Even though I might struggle with sin, I'm not a slave to it anymore. I'm a slave to righteousness. What, what happens when you fall into a, a pattern of sin over and over again. And you, just, you get in the rut and you think, man, I'm just never going to get over this. What happens? Eventually you begin to move to despair, don't you? And you think, I'm seriously never going to get over this. And it's, it's true that all of us in some way will limp our way into heaven. But it is not true that you're never going to get over it if you're in Christ. It might be hard, it might take hard work, 
It might take a whole lot of friends around you to pray for you and support you and help you and call you out when necessary and encourage you and carry you if necessary. But you can get over it because it's not about you. It's about Jesus. And that's what the disciples failed to see. Uh, Jesus, we got no bread. Guys, do you not understand seriously? But I want to point out something else to you. Jesus left the Pharisees, but did he leave the disciples? No. Because Jesus doesn't leave the spiritually blurry who follow him. He leads them, doesn't leave them. That's the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. The disciples kept up with it. I can't wait to ask them, guys, what were you thinking in that moment? Because I know what I would have been thinking. Like, man, I think I just should probably bail out and just swim to the other side. I don't think Jesus wants anything to do with me anymore. But my friend, he does. He does. He paid for you. He paid for you with his own blood. And so it's not up to you. It's not about you. I don't know what that was, but it woke you up. It's not up to you and it's not about you. It's all about Jesus. We didn't just sing, I will hold me fast, did we? He will hold me fast. Why? Because he's the only one who can hold you fast. And he'll do it. Because he gave his life for you. So as we meet the spiritually blind and we meet the spiritually blurry, we come to understand that the only way you will have spiritual 2020 vision is to see through the lens of the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the empty tomb and the promise that I'm always with you and I'm going to come back and get you. That's how we see 2020. And do you know the reality of that lens? It has to be put on every moment of every day. Because your circumstances will crop up and things will try to get between you and your vision of Jesus and you just have to say, no, I'm not taking my eyes off Jesus because nothing is better than him. And so the writer of Hebrews says, lay aside every sin and every weight that entangles you and run the race with your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. That, and only that, is how we can gain spiritual 2020 vision. And we've got no better demonstration of that this morning than in the Lord's Supper, which stands, sits before me today. When I realized that January 1st fell on a Sunday, and I remembered that we always, as our practice, take the Lord's Supper together on the first Sunday of the month, I was so excited. What better way to start the year than to take the Lord's Supper together? Everyone who takes this meal by faith, who believes that this represents the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus for you to cover your sins, to pay for your sins, to wash away your sins, if you believe that and you take this in faith, then you're welcome at this table. 
However, if you don't yet believe that, then I would simply ask for your own sake that you would let this pass by in just a few moments here. But I would also ask you, don't let that be your your condition forever. Forever. 